Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, uh, we like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We ask that you um, pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of the podcasts. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on social media platforms. When you do that, it lets uh, all the Surety folks that are connected with you see the post so they can join in. Uh, just to do a quick recap of last year, 2020, we started uh, the year off with a, an episode called Catching Up with the ABA FSLC for 2022, in which we interviewed the uh, FSLC leadership. Next, we covered the Cardinal Change Doctrine, and in March, we discussed attorney's fees. Uh, the next episode was on critical construction issues for the performing surety, followed in May by Curiosities and Surety Bond Forms. Uh, that's where we talked about some of those really awful, terrible bond forms. Then we, we covered Miller Act payment bond limitations. Uh, in July, we explored financing the principal, which was followed by our interview with Kurt Howard, who uh, then was with the Guardian Groups, now with the CNA, where we discussed the initial project site visit. In September, Cindy Rogers Ware and Tom Moran discussed the big uh, summary judgment win that Cindy had in the Skolik case and the, and the False Claims Act in general. Uh, we followed that with a presentation on the statute of repose and rounded out the year with episodes on understanding uh, CGL policies and the federal enclave doctrine. All in all, I feel like, uh, you know, it was a pretty productive and informative year. Uh, and as I say, you can listen to uh, all of those podcasts at your leisure. Uh, we hope to have a, an equally informative year in 2023. If you have any ideas for topics, you know, please send them on to me. And we're always looking for help in that. Uh, as always, you know, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end uh, for any questions. Today, we're going to talk about uh, trust funds. One of the tools that every surety claims handler needs to be familiar with are trusts. Trust can uh, be found in statutes, uh, in indemnity agreements, and in underlying contracts. And trust can even be implied by law under certain circumstances. Developing a solid understanding of the law of trust is essential uh, for the surety to be able to identify and assert potential rights in the myriad of circumstances in which trust may be useful. The question uh, which we'll address today is, well, what rights flow from trust and how can the surety use such rights to its advantage. So we'll, we'll begin by looking at the nature of trust in general, the nomenclature, their characteristics and elements, uh, you know, the duties and obligations of the parties, etc. Next, we'll, we'll focus on the, the various forms of trust, such as statutory trust funds, contractually created trusts, and, and trusts at common law. 
Finally, we'll discuss some of the potential situations in which trust can be helpful for a surety, including in bankruptcy and priority disputes over contract funds. So let's begin by discussing the nature of trust in general. So generally speaking, any, anyone competent to create a contract may dispose of the legal title to his or her property as he or she pleases. They may attach uh, such conditions and limitations to the enjoyment of said property as he or she, he or she, she chooses uh, and may vest said property in trustees for the purpose of carrying out his or her specific intention. One has the same power to create trust as one has to divest the legal title to his or her property. The definition of an express trust has been stated as follows, quote, a trust is a fiduciary relationship in which one person holds a property interest subject to an equitable obligation to keep or use that interest for the benefit of another, unquote. The restatement second of trust has defined a trust as a quote, a fiduciary relationship with respect to property, subjecting the person by whom the title to the property is held to equitable duties to deal with the property for the benefit of another person, which arises as a result of a manifestation of an intention to create the trust. Uh, a trust is not a legal entity distinct from the trustee and is not capable of legal action on its own behalf. Rather, a trust, as I noted, is a fiduciary relationship consisting of specific characteristics, which we'll talk about. The fundamental nature of a trust is the separation of legal and equitable title. So when one is the owner of, of property, you know, whether it's a piece of property and land or, or real property or, or uh, personal property, they hold both the legal and equitable title to the property together. In a trust, the owner of the property separates out or divides the legal title and the equitable title for the benefit of others. So the trustee of the trust then holds legal title to the trust property, while the beneficiaries of the trust hold the equitable title to the trust property. So the separation of, of the property rights is, uh, is critical when we, when we start talking about some of the, um, the implications of trust and bankruptcy, for example. Uh, so now let's talk about the, the nomenclature or, you know, the standard terms of a trust. There are three primary parties to a trust, the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiary. The settler is the creator of the trust. Generally speaking, the settler is the party that provides the trust property, even if the form of the trust was created by someone else. In the surety context, this will usually be the principal and or indemnitors. The trustee is the party who is appointed or required by law to carry out a trust and the one in whom an estate interest or power is vested under an express or implied agreement to administer or exercise it for the benefit of another. The settler of a trust may also serve as a trustee and we will talk more later about the special nature of a trustee in, in more detail. Uh, the beneficiary uh, is a person who, whose, benef who benefit, whose benefit the trust property is being held for. The settler and or the trustee may also be beneficiaries of the trust, but the sole trustee can, cannot be the sole beneficiary because of the doctrine of merger. If you think about that, right, if the, if the sole trustee is the sole beneficiary, then it, they're holding the property for themselves, in which case they're holding both the legal and equitable title, so the doctrine of merger applies. So. So that can't be. 
Uh, now let's talk about the, the types of trust uh, and how they can be formed. There are numerous types of trust and trust can be created in a variety of ways. Trust can be either expressed or implied. Expressed trusts are, are created by the direct and intentional acts or conduct of the parties, by some writing, deed, or words expressly evidencing the intention to create a trust. Trust can also arise by statutes, such as uh, a construction trust fund statute. Implied trusts can uh, generally arise by operation of law and are usually categorized as constructive trusts or resulting trusts. Well, we're not going to focus too much on the implied trusts in this episode, maybe in a later one. Trusts can also be either executed or executory. An executory trust involves a circumstance where a trust is intended, but the transaction has not been completed and remains imperfect. It's a trust which is not fully and finally declared and still requires some other act or acts in order to perfect it and carry out the intention of the settler. Typically, equity would not aid in the enforcement of an executory trust unless the trust is supported by consideration. An executed trust is one that is fully and finally declared by the person creating it so that nothing further remains to be done in order to make it effective. An express trust is created when the parties affirmatively manifest an intention that specific property be held in trust for the benefit of a third party. An express trust may be created without the use of technical words. All that is necessary are words or circumstances which unequivocally show an intention that the legal estate was vested in one person to be held in some manner uh, or for some purpose on behalf of another. The words trust or trustee need not be used and the parties creating the trust need not even have an understanding of the concept of a trust. Uh, conversely, uh, the mere use of the words trust or trustee will not necessarily result in a trust relationship being created if the requirements for a valid trust are not satisfied or if a trust is not intended. So, you know, the courts will look at this and even though, you know, you say in the document, I'm creating a trust here, the court may look at that and say, nah, not really, what you did was something else. And and so it's, it's these words, there's no real magic words here. I think if you're drafting one, it's obviously better to use the words like trusted trustee, uh, but, but you've also got to tick off the other boxes. The Fourth Circuit has stated that quote, any words which unequivocally show an intention that the legal estate was vested in one person to be held in some manner or for some purpose on behalf of another, if certain as to all other requisites are sufficient to create a trust, unquote. Unlike in the, the law of contracts, trusts do not typically require consideration to be valid and enforceable. The owner uh, of the property can create a trust of that property by a will declaration or transfer whether or not consideration is received for doing so. Moreover, notice, knowledge, or consent of the beneficiary to the creation of a trust is not required for the validity of the trust, nor is acceptance or assent to the trust by the beneficiary required to keep to create a valid trust. This is usually the circumstance in the construction industry. If you think about, you know, suppliers, subcontractors, laborers, they're not even usually aware that a trust has been created in some contract or in the indemnity agreement, for example. But nevertheless, the trust can be created and they can be beneficiaries. The party seeking to establish the existence of a trust uh, bears the burden of proving the creation of that trust. 
in some jurisdictions, the burden of proof uh, for establishing any trust, whether expressed or implied, requires a, a heightened standard of proof. For example, in Maryland, clear and convincing evidence um, uh, is required. In Florida, the evidence must be clear and unmistakable, both as to the intent to create the trust and as to the execution of that intent. The acts or words relied on must be unequivocal. In other jurisdictions, the heightened standard of proof is reserved for constructive and resulting trust. Moreover, while it is generally recognized that a trust may be created orally uh, in personal property, you, you can't do it with real property, proof of such trust must be of an extraordinary degree, variously described as clear, cogent, convincing, et cetera, leaving no room for doubt, et cetera. Uh, always best to have the trust in writing. Uh, now let's discuss the elements of a valid trust. Uh, the description of elements required to create a valid trust will vary from state to state, but it, it can be generally stated that uh, the requisite elements are uh, a declaration creating the trust or a manifestation of an intention of the settler to create a trust. Two, a trust rests or property. Three, a trustee with active duties. Four, a designated beneficiaries. Five, a trust purpose. And six, if required, and this is not true everywhere, delivery of the trust property to the trustee. The authors of uh, the restatement define the elements of an express trust as follows, quote, in the strict traditional sense, a trust involves three elements. One, a trustee who holds a trust property and is subject to duties to deal with it for the benefit of one or more others. Two, one or more beneficiaries to whom or for whose benefit the trustee owes the duties with respect to the property. And three, trust property, which is held by the trustee for the beneficiaries. So let's drill down on some of these elements. Uh, first, we, we have intent. You know, one of the fundamental re requirements for the creation of a trust is the intent of the settler to create a trust. Most courts hold that a trust is created only if the settler properly manifests an intention to create the trust relationship. The intent to create a trust must be clear and, and unequivocal. Such intent must be manifested in some external expression of written or spoken words or conduct. The intention of the settler may be ascertained by a consideration of their words, uh, and their conduct in light of the surrounding circumstances. In the case of written trust, courts will look, you know, first and foremost to the language of the trust document and attempt to interpret that document to determine and effectuate the intent of the settler. If there is a dispute or a question about uh, the intent element, uh, then the, the restatement provides some factors that you can look at, and courts will, will look at a variety of factors, you know, including the relations between the party, the financial situation of the parties, the motives uh, that may be reasonably uh, supposed to have been involved in, in the issue and, and whether the result reached by construing the transaction as, as a trust or not a trust, uh, you know, would, would have uh, some impact. So there's a number of factors that a court will, will have to look to if there's a question as to whether intent has been established. The next element of a trust uh, to look at is the existence of the trust property or res. The trust property can consist of any type of um, uh, transferable property. The, the restatement defines the type of property that can be the subject of a trust as follows. Trust property can be real or personable or personal a tangible or intangible, it may consist of such diverse rights as undivided interests, terms of years, contingent future interests, choses in action, even 
chooses with respect to things that are not specifically ascertainable at the time the trust is created or with respect to things that are not owned by the settler or in existence at that time. Generally, the trust property cannot be property that the settler has only a mere future expectancy or hope of acquiring an interest in at some later date without a present right, interest, or consideration. The settler must clearly identify the trust property so that it is defined, definite, and reasonably ascertainable. Another basic element of uh, any valid and enforceable trust, as we noted, is the identification of beneficiaries of the trust. A beneficiary can be any party that has capacity to take and hold property. Individuals, corporations, whether they're municipal or private, including nonprofit corporations, unincorporated associations, and even the government can all be beneficiaries of a trust. In addition, a class or a group may be designated as beneficiary. So you could have something like all subcontractors or all suppliers as group designated beneficiaries. However, the beneficiaries must be sufficiently identifiable, definite, or ascertainable for a trust to be valid. While the, the beneficiaries may be ascertainable, they need not be specifically named in the terms of the trust. For the beneficiaries, uh, further, the, the beneficiaries do not necessarily need to be known at the time the trust is created. And in such circumstances, the title to the trust property remains in the trustee until such time as the beneficiaries have been ascertained. So, you know, you have the situation where, you know, ABC contractor ultimately becomes a sub on a job with bonded contract funds, uh, but at the time the indemnity agreement is entered into, uh, nobody has any idea that ABC, you know, contractor is going to be a sub. But that doesn't um, that doesn't destroy the the, uh, the specificness or ascertainableness of of that uh, beneficiary. A class is not indefinite merely because the class consists of a changing or shifting group the number of whose members may increase or decrease. It's important to note that persons who may only incidentally benefit in some manner from the performance of the trust are not beneficiaries of the trust and cannot enforce the trust. A beneficiary must be specifically intended to be a beneficiary. Finally, perhaps the, uh, the, the defining aspect of a trust is the existence of a trustee to hold the trust property. A trustee may be any party that can hold title to property. The trustee holds mere legal title to the trust property, as we talked about, for the benefit of the beneficiaries with certain powers and subject to certain duties imposed by the terms of the trust, by equitable jurisprudence, and by statute. Thus, corporations and unincorporated, unincorporated associations may serve as trustees. A designated trustee may accept or decline the role, and such action can be either by words or conduct. Under certain circumstances, acceptance uh, can be deemed by the trustee's silence. Moreover, if one accepts the role of trustee, one can later resign. A trustee can also be removed either by the terms of the trust or court action. The trustee has all powers necessary or appropriate to effectuate the purpose of the trust except for those that are specifically denied to the trustee in the trust itself or prohibited under applicable law. The trustee is obligated as a fiduciary to exercise the powers conferred. 
upon acceptance of the role of trustee that the trustee has the affirmative duty to administer the trust diligently and in good faith. The trustee's duties are referred to as fiduciary duties and include the obligation to administer the trust as a prudent person would with reasonable care, skill, and caution. Further, the trustee owes a duty of loyalty to the beneficiaries and must administer the trust solely in the interest of and for the benefit of the beneficiaries in furtherance of the purposes of the trust. The duty of loyalty is for trustees particularly strict even when comparison to standards of other fiduciary relationships, you know, like a, a lawyer, client, a accountant, client, that kind of thing. In this regard, the Supreme Court has observed under principles of equity, a trustee bears an unwavering duty of complete loyalty to the beneficiary of the trust, to the exclusion of the interests of all other parties, to deter the trustee from all temptation and to prevent any possible injury to the beneficiary the rule against the trustee dividing his loyalties must be enforced with uncompromising rigidity. A part of the trustee's duty, uh, as part of their duties, the trustee is, is obligated to keep records and provide information regarding the trust. Finally, the trustee is under a duty to identify and segregate trust property. The restatement provides the trustee has a duty to see the trust property is designated or identifiable as property of the trust and also a duty to keep trust property separate from the trustee's own property and, so far as practical, separate from other property not subject to the trust. However, now the fact that a trustee does not in fact segregate the trust property from other property while a breach of duty should not operate to render the trust invalid. As one court stated, trust funds do not lose their character as such because they are commingled with those of the trustee. Once a trust is created, it cannot be destroyed by the action, wrongful or innocent, of the trustee. <coughs> Excuse me. However, while the trust may not be held invalid, the ability to recover the trust property may be impaired or even extinguished if the trust property cannot be traced or identified due to the commingling. Now let's um, talk about where trusts are created in the surety industry. In, in the surety industry, trusts typically arise by contractual agreement, whether in the prime contract, a subcontract, or in the indemnity agreement, or uh, by statute through a construction trust fund act or similar legislation. Now many, many jurisdictions have some form of construction trust fund legislation that may be applicable uh, to bonded projects, but while many uh, states have such statutes, a majority of states, I think, do not. Accordingly, the, the surety must first determine if the applicable jurisdiction has such a statute. If the particular jurisdiction does uh, have some form of trust fund statute, the surety must still carefully explore a number of issues to determine if the legislation can be useful to the surety. Initially, the scope of the applicable trust fund uh, statute must be analyzed. For example, some of the trust fund statutes are, are limited to private projects and would not apply to governmental projects where most significant bonding arises. Other statutes are limited to residential construction projects, which are typically not bonded. Still, other statutes are limited to criminal penalties and may not give rise to enforcement or recovery by the surety or even permit a private right of action. Such statutes may not even constitute a trust at all. Uh, moreover, some statutes only permit recovery by a limited classification of persons, which may not include the surety. 
Finally, some statutes have expressed exceptions which may preclude or limit the use of the statute by the surety. For example, one trust statute has an exception which excuses the operation of the trust if the party holding the funds has furnished a payment or performance bond. Finally, the, the mere fact that a statute might require certain contract funds to be held may not give rise to a valid enforceable trust in all circumstances. So research into the specific statutory provision and the particular jurisdiction's interpretation is required. Let's consider the indemnity agreement. Most general agreements of indemnity generally impose on the principal and the indemnitors the obligation to hold bonded contract funds in trust for the benefit of the surety and subs, materialmen, suppliers, laborers that perform work on the project. However, the terms of these trust fund provisions in GAIs can vary dramatically. Some provisions are very detailed and thorough, and some are quite frankly vague and confusing. <laughs> While the trust fund provision <coughs> of the indemnity agreement constitutes an express trust and operates to provide a surety with enforceable interest, must be uh, they must be determined under under state law, even if the matter is pending in federal court. Because the law of trust for each state varies, often in, in, in important respects, and because the terms of the indemnity agreements vary, the surety must measure the specific indemnity agreement trust provision against the relevant trust law of the jurisdiction where the matter is located to determine if the trust fund provision of the indemnity agreement meets the, the required elements. Typically, the, the GAI trust provision will sufficiently state the intention to create a trust as well as its purpose uh, however, when you do the, the research, you'll see that many courts struggle with whether the GIA properly identifies the trust property or risk. Some well-known GI provisions, um, you know, they do a good job of that. They, they, they talk about the money paid, securities, warrants, checks, evidence of debt, any proceeds that are, you know, the bonded contract funds are impressed with the trust, et cetera. And so they do a good job of that, but, but, uh, but some don't, and, and courts have used that failure to adequately identify the race as uh, you know as a grounds for finding that no trust existed while the trust property even if it's clearly identified for purposes of satisfying the elements a significant issue arises also with respect to whether the trust property is in existence at the time that the trust is created some courts have held that if the bonded contract funds are not in existence at the time the the indemnity agreement is executed a valid trust cannot be created other courts and commentators have held and observed that the mere fact that trust property would be created later is not fatal to the establishment of the trust. The general rule is that a contract created or a contract to create a trust for a future race when when acquired is appropriate if the settler receives sufficient consideration. In a typical circumstance, the surety's issuance of the bonds for the principal as settler of the trust in reliance upon the agreement of indemnity and its provisions should constitute fair and adequate consideration. Supported by this consideration, the agreement of indemnity should be construed as a contract to hold the property, contract funds, in trust when acquired and as giving the beneficiaries equitable right, uh, rights to such property from the moment of its acquisition. But regardless, some courts, they simply refuse to, to recognize this, this reasoning. Most uh, GIA trust fund provisions do a sufficient job of, of setting forth the trust beneficiaries and identifying the trustees. Uh, and you know you can see those those provisions in in most agreements. With respect to the issue of delivery of the trust property, some courts hold that in order to create a completed and enforceable trust of personality, 
such as contract funds, there must be delivery or the equivalent of delivery. Other courts hold that delivery is not required if the settler declaring the trust is also the trustee. Uh, logically, once the contract funds are paid to the principal, any delivery requirement has been satisfied and the contract funds are held in, should be held in trust. Many, many courts in a variety of jurisdictions uh, over the years uh, have, have held that trust fund provisions uh, in the GAI are valid and enforceable. Uh, but there are, there are also uh, a number of courts that go the other way and have found for various reasons because of the particular law or the particular terms uh, that, that there isn't a valid trust. Uh, you have the same thing. Uh, you can find trust funds, as, as I mentioned, in the underlying contracts and the sureties. While the sureties are not parties to those contracts, they can, through their equitable rights of subrogation, claim rights under those contracts. And, uh, and indeed, in, in some jurisdictions, the courts where the underlying contracts have been uh, incorporated by reference into the bond, the courts have held that sureties are, in, are bound by those, by those uh, contracts and so therefore can assert the rights under those contracts. So you, you'll find um, you know, trust fund provisions that can be utilized there. So now with the understanding of the trust, let's discuss how they can apply in bankruptcy. And, and every, of course, every surety's had to deal with this and had to deal with, you know, uh, the trustee in bankruptcy and other parties like the IRS or secured lenders trying to get at contract funds. And, uh, and so you'll see that in the code, uh, trusts have been addressed and, and protected. So section 541 of the bankruptcy code defines what bankruptcy property is. And it, it states that property in which the debtor holds as of the commencement of the case only legal title and not an equitable interest becomes property of the estate under sections A1 and 2 of this section only to the extent of the debtor's legal title to such property, but not to the extent of any equitable interest in such property that the debtor does not hold. So as we talked about, you know, in the creation of the trust, the trustee holds the legal title but the beneficiaries hold the equitable title. And so if a trustee goes into bankruptcy, the principal or the indemnitor in our case goes into bankruptcy, then they're only holding the bare legal title as trustees. And so that doesn't become property of the bankruptcy estate. The, the equitable part of that property does not become property of the bankruptcy estate. And the Supreme Court has acknowledged that in, in cases and so of a number of bankruptcy courts and so this becomes very important because if if the property if the trust property is not property of the bankruptcy estate, then things like preference actions can't be uh, enforced against that property. Things things like uh, turnover power and 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 strong arm powers of the trustee can't be enforced because the trust property is not property of the estate. And so you have a situation where trust property becomes very valuable. Uh, as a defense for a surety in a bankruptcy matter. And indeed, sureties can even, under, under Section 541, seek to affirmatively force the bankruptcy trustee or debtor in possession to release trust funds to the proper beneficiaries and, and not to use such funds uh, for bankruptcy. And then finally, uh, under Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, a, subsection A4, uh, there the surety could use the... Um, the trust property as a basis for non-dischargeability if there's been defalcation um, uh, while acting as a fiduciary. So as we said, a trustee is a fiduciary of the, of the 
this the trust race. And so if as a fiduciary that the trustee has mishandled the funds to the point of defalcation under 523 of the code, then the trustee, uh, which would be the trust would be the principal or the indemnitor, can be held uh, to be non-discharged as to that debt. And so that's a um, that's, that's a potentially important right. Now the Supreme Court recently uh, in the in the Bullock versus Bank of Champagne case has changed the analysis there and made it very difficult. Um, but it still is a potential right. You can check out our uh, podcast on non-dischargeability and bankruptcy that we did on September 12, 2016 for more information about that. So I see we are uh, out of time. We're over time. Uh, so let's uh, bring this to a close. Before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, February 13th at 1230, of course. Upcoming events, uh, the ABA FSLC midwinter meeting right around the corner in Washington, uh, January 18th through the 20th. Uh, our own Cindy Rogers Ware, Rich Pledger, and George Backrack will be in attendance. Uh, the first uh, lunch meeting of 2023 for the Philadelphia Surety Claim Association will be held on February 22nd in Philadelphia. The DRI Fidelity and Surety Roundtable will be held in Chicago on March 10th. And on March 29th through 31st, the 34th Annual Southern Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference will be held. And I'm not sure of the location. I think I heard Savannah, but that might, that might not be right. So check back later. We'll, we'll get that nailed down. So thank you to everyone uh, for uh, joining me today. And uh, as always, for your support. Let me uh, open up real quick. Okay. Anybody have any questions? on trust funds all right well again appreciate everybody thank you for listening to this episode of surety today audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the surety today page of the Wright constable and skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety today